Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter, will introduce you to Howard Steele, who will discuss reflective functions and mentalization. Howard Steele, PhD, is professor and chair of clinical psychology at the New School for Social Research in New York City. At the New School, Dr. Steele co-directs the Center for Attachment Research. Howard Steele is also senior and founding editor of the international journal Attachment and Human Development and is the founding president of the Society for Emotion and Attachment Studies. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Hello, everybody. I am here again with the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, and I'm delighted to share that I'm here with Dr. Howard Steele today. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, so Dr. Steele is a professor of psychology um, at the Center for Attachment Research at the New School in New York City, and has um, published many things about attachment, including journal articles, books, et cetera, which we could touch on some of those at the end and where folks could find them. But Dr. Steele, today we are going to be speaking about reflective function and mentalization, two terms that are thrown around a lot uh, in attachment research and clinical practice. Um, And so I just wonder if you could start out just giving a, a general overview of those and how they relate to attachment theory. Sure, uh, I'd be very happy to do that. So the first thing to hold in mind is that reflective functioning and mentalization are synonymous. They refer to the same thing and they refer to language, specifically language that is used to describe mental states, beliefs, desires, wishes, fears, thoughts, feelings, uh, the content of the contents of mind. And it's important as well to notice uh, some similarities between mentalization, reflective functioning, and ideas that have been around for many decades in the clinical, psychological, and psychoanalytic literature. So uh, anybody trained in ego psychology would be familiar with the self-observing capacities of the ego. This is also, uh, I will argue, reflective functioning or mentalization. There's also in the clinical psychology literature, going back many decades, the idea of um, psychological mindedness or psychological insight and so on. And um, certainly reflective functioning and mentalization uh, owe a lot to these traditions. The difference being that there is an 11 point scoring system for reflective functioning. And this can be applied to psychotherapy transcripts. It can be applied to uh, interview material. It can be applied to five minute speech samples. It can be uh, applied to any narrative material. And uh, that effort involves paying close attention to mental state words. If I say I'm happy to be with you today, we'd circle happy. 
if, if I said, uh, I'm thinking about my own doctoral research that I pursued some 30 years ago in London, England, mm-hmm. thinking would be uh, circled. And then we'd pay attention to what it is I'm thinking about that and what it is I'm thinking about those days of, in the late 1980s in London, England, is that there was a confluence of forces at work uh, influencing me and my colleagues, principally Miriam Steele and Peter Fonagate, who um, were meeting and talking, and we were reading the theory of mind literature. We were reading Donald Winnicott. We were trying to get our hands, our head around Wilford Beyond's ideas. And uh, out of, um, there was also percolating at the time, Daniel Stern's book about the uh, interpersonal world of the human infant. And uh, we found ourselves reading uh, transcriptions of adult attachment interviews. The adult attachment interview is central to uh, the notion of reflective functioning. It it was in response to reading um, attachment interview responses that we came upon the idea of reflective functioning, more or less reflective functioning. And um, it's possible uh, to apply reflective functioning in that context. But you're you're right to um, kind of orient me back to the adult attachment interview because the adult attachment interview is a series of questions about childhood experiences put to the adult. And uh, toward the end of the interview, uh, there are some questions that demand evaluation, uh, such as, um, as you think about your childhood experiences, we've been talking about those that you, your earliest memories through the age of, ch- of 12, when you think about your parents' behavior, why did your parents behave the way they did? That's a question that demands mentalizing or reflective functioning. And think about another question. Um, as you think about your childhood experiences, do you think they have an influence on the kind of person you are uh, today as an adult? Uh, that too is a question that demands evaluation, reflective functioning, uh, looking back and assigning meaning to experiences. So uh, we could say that uh, reflective functioning is uh, primarily uh, an exercise in looking back, reviewing, and making sense or meaning out of our experiences. But it's also uh, evident in um, forward-looking, you know, anticipation. What do we think tomorrow is going to be like? What do we think next month is going to be like? What do we think it's going to be like when we visit um, with um, our therapist next week or when we visit with our mother next week or with our sister or brother? All of these um, questions, questions that involve the word how, what, why, particularly why questions are questions that invite, possibly demand reflective functioning. Yes. Yes, well, thank you for for clarifying some of that. Very helpful. So I think another thing I would like to ask you about that would be important for clinicians to understand is how the capacity for reflective function relates to parenting, as well as how mentalization relates to parenting. Like why, if if we are working, for example, with adoptive parents or, parents who are uh, raising a a child that seems challenging to them in some way. Why would these concepts matter? 
Well, we do know that the most typical kinds of difficulties that adults get into in their relationships with loved ones, as parents or as relationship partners, the, the greatest amount of difficulty arises when negative feelings, fear, anger, sadness, disappointment, despair, uh, when these get the better of us, when these influence our behaviors. And of course, when we're angry, uh, we, we know that um, blood rushes to uh, the extremities, that blood rushes particularly to the hands, we get ready to fight. When we're afraid, blood rushes to our feet, we get ready to run. And where reflective functioning is helpful is in recognizing those emotional responses and in the recognition, giving words to the experience and so containing it and minimizing its possibly disruptive influence. Mm -hmm. uh, my, uh, if I th I'm a parent, uh, my children are now adults, but occasionally they might have said to me when I was, uh, they did say to me uh, in moments of anger that I felt as a parent, as all parents have such moments, you're angry with me. And I would say a little bit, but maybe, maybe I'm more surprised and a little bit sad that we're in this situation again. You know that I love you, but I don't like this behavior that you're engaging in. You don't like this behavior you're showing me. You can do better. I can do better. Uh, let's, let's work on it together. That might be a way of um, containing our anger instead of a child. Uh, you know, a child might not feel free to say, I think you're angry at me, but if they do, you know, a parent might, might, well be tempted if they don't have control of their anger they might be tempted to say you're bloody right i'm angry at you and you and all kind and, and this of course is going to be uh, as if um throwing lighter fluid on the flames and with um mentalization skills or reflective functioning we might gain the opportunity and the the hopefully the the habit of recognizing those negative emotions when they arise and thinking about how we can contain them, how we can understand them, how we can take responsibility for them instead of blaming others. Uh, I think ultimately um, the parent, the adoptive parent, the birth parent, anybody in a caregiving role for somebody who's vulnerable uh, must take responsibility for their thoughts, feelings, and actions. And in that effort to take responsibility, reflective functioning has a vital role to play. Mm -hmm. uh, I would add that um, reflective functioning breaks out into many different um, subparts, and there are four subparts that people who learn how to score reflective functioning pay attention to. One is the nature of mental states. Now, uh, we cannot come up with an exhaustive list of the nature of mental states, but we can we can make an attempt. And one of the things we know about mental states is that they're opaque. They're not transparent. I can speak with you. Um, I can look at you. I can listen to you. Uh, ultimately, I can only guess what's going on in your mind. 
hopefully it will be a reasonably accurate, informed guess, but it's a guess. And so uh, caution or reticence, a, a kind of uh, respect for the other, is a kind of starting point for reflective functioning, along with curiosity. Because I could say, I, I can't know what's in your, your mind, or I can't know what's in my parents' mind. You ask me, why did my parents behave the way they did? Ask them. Well, that, that's, that's, that's closing down the discussion, and it's also not acknowledging the relationship. I have a relationship uh, with my parents. I had one in childhood. Uh, one is no longer alive. One is quite ill. I, I, I nonetheless still have a relationship with both of them. Uh, uh, and hopefully, um, in, in the context of a relationship with a, a living loved one, I can check back in and say, you know, it, seem, it, it seems to me, I think, I think that I'm answering your question, but uh, tell me, is, is that your experience too? Or I think this might be happening for you. What What do you say? I, I, I want to listen. Um, so openness to the other, acknowledgement of the opaqueness of mental states, uh, and an acknowledgement of the limitations on insight. I'm never going to understand completely why my parents behaved the way they did during my childhood, but I'm curious. I, I have some ideas. I'm never going to understand completely all the trauma and difficulty in my adopted child. If I had an adopted child whom I adopted, say, um, at four or five years of age after a complicated history, I'm going to be very curious about that history. I'm going to be respectful of the influences it has on my child, but I'm going to be very careful about assuming I know for sure anything about how it's influencing him or her. Um, this is all part of taking a reflective stance. Uh, so awareness of the nature of mental states. The other piece is the links between mental states and behavior, and particularly acknowledging that my understanding of my child might be different from my partner or my spouse's understanding. So I should talk to my spouse and find out if he or she, uh, or if they agree with me. And if we differ, how so and why? And can we work together for the benefit of, of the child? Um, and then there's two other pieces, the, the developmental perspective, uh, showing an, uh, an awareness of um, change over time, the way mental states uh, can change over time, uh, the way we can recognize how we might have been very afraid or angry uh, about something in the past, and, and, and maybe we came to understand that we don't need to be quite so afraid or quite so angry. And there's a story to tell about that, that change. Telling that story is employing reflective functioning to account for development. Uh, and that's a very big um, part of, of the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as you were describing those various components of reflective function, I was thinking to myself, it's, it's clear why high levels of reflective functioning are associated with security in the adult attachment interview. As you're talking about a lot of flexibility in thinking, being able to take the viewpoint of another, being able to acknowledge, I think this, but you know, it could be this to, to my sibling who you asked the same question. So yeah, I, I, I can see how that all fits together. 
Well, I would also argue that uh, reflective functioning and mentalization skills are something that people um, rely on without knowing it or without having that term for it. So yeah. every time we ask another person, um, oh, why, why, don't, why don't you want to go to that restaurant? Um, you used to, used to love going to that restaurant. Well, why not? And the, the why question is always going to invite a reflective response. Somebody might say, well, I, I, I don't go to that restaurant anymore. I, 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 I got food poisoning there um, three months ago. And I, 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 you know, I, don't, I don't enjoy putting myself uh, in that context, which reminds me of that um, unpleasant experience. Can we go to another restaurant? Um, that's a trivial example. But, but anytime we ask someone why, or how's that so, or how do you know that, we're inviting a reflective response. And the interesting thing is that we'll know a, re a high reflective response when we get one because we'll be satisfied. We'll think, oh gosh, they, they really answered my question. I know something now I didn't know before. Um, that's a good feeling. And it, it's one that uh, comes from really engaging with other people at that level of shared reflection or shared mentalization, if you like. Yes. So, you know, we, we talked about some questions specific to the adult attachment interview that demand reflective functioning. Now we're talking about some just in common everyday life, you know, questions that come up. Are there some specific questions that come to mind, you know, as a social worker is doing a home study with a family or you know, a therapist is, is meeting with some parents um, where they're going to be working with them and their child. Are, what are some things that come to mind there? Yeah, well, one of the things um, that we lean on very heavily in the questions that we ask parents in structured interviews is inviting uh, parents, caregivers, to tell me about their experience. What's it like to be the caregiver of this child? What sort of person does the child seem to be? What are the best moments, the most satisfying moments when you're with him or her? And what are the moments that are maybe the most frustrating, the most dissatisfying moments? And we work with a model of memory that um, a researcher named Tulving came up with many years ago. Uh, there are many models of memory, but this one very relevant to reflective functioning and to attachment is the distinction between episodic details, sensory episodic details of our personal experience and the semantic or global terms that are used to describe them. You know, Karen, I might, um, if I haven't seen you in a while, I might say, how are you? And uh, it, it, it's, if we're... Um, don't have that much time, you, you might say, well, things are well, um, thanks, you know. Um, but uh, on the other hand, um, if I might, if I say, how are you, uh, you, you might want to tell me in, in detail about what's been happening. And if we have time for that, um, that'll be, uh, that'll teach me much more. And I can facilitate that by saying, how are you? I really want to know. I've, uh, I, I've got some time, you know, how are things... Uh, with him, her, them. Uh, so I think a social worker on a home visit has time 
and should and should um, probe for those kinds of memories, good, bad, best, least favorite moments with the child, least least fa most favorite least favorite moments as a parent, and ask well, what what's that like? Tell me about a time. Where were you? Um, can I hear a little bit more? And in and and then perhaps asking. Um, how does that feel looking back or, you know, is that typical and, 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 and so on to get at the, um, to invite, uh, not only recall of sensory personal details with the child, but also an, invite an account of what it means and what lessons the parent, uh, might have drawn from those experiences. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the parent is willing to engage and, 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 um, probe for those memories and remain flexible, organized, balanced, calm, and is um, sharing their attention between what the social worker might be asking and the child or family members that the parent is present with and responsible for, uh, I think that's going to be um, a good sign. I think social workers are extraordinarily skilled at picking up um, parents who are, who are angry and mm -hmm. And, and and not in well not not in good control of their anger. What's more subtle are um, parents who are grieving quietly about some past loss or trauma, and you'll find out about that as a social worker uh, if you uh, if you probe carefully and sensitively in, in, into um, the parent's experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, good. Well, I'd like to ask one more question before we start to wind this down, and that's shifting a bit over to um, asking the parent what they think might be in their child's mind or what their child might be experiencing. And I'm thinking of some folks that use video, for example, where you could show a video clip of, of the parent and the child and then ask them to reflect on it. So could you just speak a little bit to uh, the idea, how these ideas apply to understanding the mind of your child? Well, that's a fantastic question. And um, video film is uh, enormously helpful in that effort in um, working with uh, parents to uh, show them uh, what they uh, sound like, what they look like uh, when interacting um, with their child or what their child looks like when, when the parent's not there. And, and uh, to ask, you know, what, what do you think was going on for him or her? What, might, what do you think they were feeling at the time? Uh, how, where do you think things led? How do you think they felt after this video, uh, inter, video interaction took place? And, and also uh, um, using the metaphor of the remote control, it's very useful in those circumstances to uh, give, perhaps give the remote control to the, to the parent or the therapist who's showing the video can take control of him or herself, but to pause, to rewind, to ask, say, let's look at that one more time. Is there anything else that comes to mind? And, and, and finally, if you could go back into the, the interaction, if the parent was part of the video, if you could go back in there, uh, what might you do different, differently? Uh, but, but I, but you know all this because we've talked at, at length about using video in um, efforts to uh, help families. And uh, uh, I think it, 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 they're, they're, not, they're not surprising ideas, 
um, they're surprisingly simple ideas that are enormously helpful, I think. Yeah, yes, I think that um, we, even without video, we can be asking questions about what do you think your child was experiencing in this situation that you describe. I recently had a parent email me that has a child adopted um, out of uh, orphanage uh, internationally. And I asked, you know, tell me what you think it was like for your child there. Uh, and and she, she was really able to share a lot and it told me a lot <laughs> about her ability to, to put herself in the shoes of her child, so to speak. Um, so, yes. I Absolutely. And of course, um, tears are likely as um, parents engage in this effort to put themselves in the shoes of their child, to imagine the pain that they've felt in the past. And I would just say that um, that's all part of the process of um, learning more fully uh, what the experience of um, children in our care, children whom we're responsible for, what their experiences have been, and um, charting a, a path forward that uh, is more hopeful and different and uh, safer, uh, more secure than um, what the child might have experienced in, in the past. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much um, for your time in discussing this really important topic for us to understand. and. Um, I know you, you publish many different things across the attachment literature, and um, I forgot to mention at the beginning that you're editor of the Journal of Attachment and Human Development. So, um, but I also am aware of your book, The Clinical Applications of the Adult Attachment Interview, that you and Miriam edited, and and you have another one coming out, or has just come out. Um, there, there, it, there's another edited book that just came out this year called A Handbook of Attachment-Based Interventions, uh, with some 21 chapters, and the vast majority of the chapters concern early childhood, because uh, I think what we know um, from the attachment perspective is that if we can turn things around for parents um, and children early in the life of um, children. Uh, then uh, there are long-term uh, benefits to, to be realized. So this is the first edition of the Handbook of Attachment-Based Interventions. It was a difficult uh, choice to decide to what we would include. And I well imagine that there might be, uh, I, if I reflect on the future, I, I think there will be a, a second edition. And um, I imagine that, that very possibly uh, some of the work um, uh, going on in your orbit um, would, would, would um, deserve place in, in, in such a handbook. So it's an exciting time for people doing attachment work because it's um, uh, widely, uh, the messages and the uh, lessons are, are, are widely available. Uh, we have a, um, uh, the, my lab, we call it the Center for Attachment Research, and we have a, um, we have a website and we put PDFs of papers up there. There's also a Facebook page entitled Center for Attachment Research. Uh, and um, we're happy when people visit there and learn about um, the things we do at um, our uh, lab in New York City. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that and thank you for your time today. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, 
or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.